0: The vision received was that of blood cells traveling throughout the body, supplying the much needed oxygen and other nutrients to the differing members of the body to fulfill their purpose. Once the blood cells are spent, they must return back to the heart to be refilled before being sent out again and fulfill their purpose. Well, welcome back. We just completed the Old Covenant overview. And we've seen from the very beginning that God's purpose has been to obtain a what? What has God been trying to obtain all throughout the Old Covenant? He called it a name Zion, a dwelling place. And that dwelling place was a people where He could dwell with His people and He could be glorified as God of all creation. He began by creating a paradise that we know is Eden. We find out that man rebelled. Man separated himself from God because of his sin. And after a few generations, God came to Abraham and told him that through his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. That was in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 22. After Abraham he came to Moses He told him to build a tabernacle in which he would dwell among his people. That was Exodus 25. After that, there was King David had in his heart to build a place, a tremendous place for the Lord. But because he was a man of war and he had shed so much blood, God did not allow David to build this place, but allowed it to be built by his son Solomon. And this was in 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13 that it was found to be in David's heart to do this. And the prophecy was fulfilled by David's son Solomon. He built the first temple in Jerusalem. And later on, after the breaking of the kingdoms, the Babylonians tore it down when they came and took over Judah. The temple was rebuilt after that. But it did not have its former glory, sort of like when you buy a brand new house and maybe, you know, uh, part of it gets on fire, you go ahead and you restore it, but it's never like it was, once was in the beginning. And so it was with that second temple. <clears throat> and that temple, the second temple, was the same temple that was still up when Jesus Christ was born and the king that did the renovations was King Herod. All of these dwelling places of God in the Old Testament were always looking ahead toward a permanent dwelling place that God has always wanted. It seems to be that God has had this desire in His heart, and as you read the scriptures, you start getting that indication, you start getting that impression, That God, from the very beginning, even though it wasn't said explicitly, it seems like he just wanted to dwell with man forever. And if there's one verse that summarizes the theme in the New Testament, whereas the Old Testament, it seems like this theme was was, um, not only that Jesus Christ was going to come, the Messiah was going to come, but that... There was this theme that God wanted to dwell with his people. He wanted to be as close to them as he can. In the New Testament, it says in Acts 17, verse 24, Paul says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples, made with hands. And yet, that seems like to me that that's what he's been trying to do. But again, all of those natural manifestations of God dwelling with his people, the tabernacle, the the Davidic tabernacle, the, the temple, Solomon's temple, the restored temple, all of that was just pointing towards something that God wanted to do in a marvelous, magnificent way, unlike anything else that has been done in the earth, where he wanted to dwell in a temple, not made with human hands. And so with the New Testament era, God is dwelling in living, human temples. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians three sixteen. he says it very clearly, very explicitly, Don't you know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16. The idea of God dwelling in man is the overarching theme of all the Bible from beginning to end. And it all began with a very special man Named Jesus. Let's read of a prophecy of this man in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Patricia, if you will, read that when you get the moment.
1: They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. <coughs> and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to which shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious.
0: This root of Jesse is that branch that we talked about before where it was prophesied that a branch would arise. My branch. And the root of Jesse is referring to Jesse, the father of David. And this root of Jesse, the Gentiles are going to seek after. This root of Jesse is the one who came before Jesse. And that's actually Jesus himself. And hopefully we're going to look into the mystery of this as we go along in the New Testament of why this branch, this root of Jesse, is called the root of Jesse. Jesus Christ is building God's glorious, eternal dwelling place. He is the master architect. Just as it says, when the world was created, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So let me give you some, because we talked about when we started the Old Covenant, we gave you some facts. Just some things that, you know, as, as, as Christians, you should have these, uh, the, these uh, facts in your mind and just know them. Anybody know how many books there are in the New Covenant? She laughs. Anybody know? Anybody remember? Twenty-seven. 27 books in the New Testament. How many writers? 40. Just the New Testament.
2: Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, just the New Testament. That
1: would be people that wrote the Gospels Paul, Peter, James. How many? Paul, Peter, James, John, Luke. <laughs> Five? Did
0: Jude write? No, Jude is pretty bad. Wow. Seven. I think this is a really easy answer. There's only one author.
2: Oh. There's
0: only one author.
2: Oh, God. And this particular
0: (laughs) author (laughs) took different colored pens and wrote down what he wanted to say. One author,
3: seven pens.
0: One author with... It's actually eight. One author with eight different colored pens and they're all sharing his heart. Anybody know the original language of the New Testament? Um,
1: he, he, uh, no,
0: Greek and Aramaic. Greek and Aramaic for the most part, although there are some indications that Matthew, Mark, and Luke may have been written in Hebrew. May have been. <clears throat> Anybody know when it was first translated into English? Give me an approximation. How many years ago was it translated into English? 600 years ago. 600. No, I'm not agreeing. I'm I'm saying, okay, he said 600. Anybody else? I
1: thought it was... Because we went
0: over this on Tuesday Night Bible Studies. uh, In the
1: 1500s, I think, or
0: the... 1500s? So how many years back is that? I don't
1: know.
0: Wow, it's hard. 2012, 1500.
3: (laughs) Oh, Mm. I'm sorry. About 500 years. You
0: say about 500. 600, 500, take a guess. 700. 500 was correct. In the 1500s. About 500 years ago. It was first translated into English. Into English.
1: May I say that I know that because I just read an article for one of my kids. I don't want y'all to think I'm this brainiac. I just read an article about a guy named Tyndale who started it and then it was finished during King James. No. Yeah, I think so, but Mm -hmm. I don't remember the name of the
0: person. Anybody know the most widely used (coughs) translation of the Bible in all the world, in all history? King James. Very good. King James. That's right. The King James Bible. First published in 1611. Now, just because we call it the King James Bible, doesn't mean King James translated it. There were lots of people that translated, and she mentioned the name of a man who translated English. in English on his own. He was martyred. And then they took his manuscripts and tried to do a much better work with a, excuse me, a lot more people uh, working together to get it to where where uh, the authorized 16 1611 version is. Now the books of the New Testament can be divided into four groupings. Just like we kind of divided the Old Testament into the what was that first book? I mean the first group. Anybody remember the Torah, the the Pentateuch, I guess. And then came the. Anybody remember? Because I gave you a diagram on it.
1: Yeah.
0: The um. The uh, who? The what? Mm, No. Yeah. Here I have it. Remember this picture? We had the Pentateuch, first five books. We had the historical books. Those were Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. That's just the history of that. Then we had the poetic books, the poetry books. uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then we had the major and the minor prophets. So those divided kind of into four groupings. Well, in the New Testament, we kind of also divided into four groupings that just help us you know, try to remember where things are. It starts with the Gospels. First four books of the Bible are the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The next section would be one book, the book of Acts. That's the history of what what they went through, how they uh, grew, how they were multiplying, how they kind of filled the earth and spread themselves abroad, how the Gospel was first preached, who it was preached to, What did they do to receive the gospel or or, or to do something with the gospel? All of that is found in the book of Acts. But then there came the epistles. epistles. These are letters written to, and this is really important that you remember when you read and study the New Testament. You need to remember that the gospels tell us the ministry and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. They tell us how salvation actually became available to mankind. Then you get into the Acts, which describes the early years of the church, and the book is the only place in the entire Bible that tells you the actual words and, and, and teachings of the apostles when they were spreading the gospel. That's the only one that does that. But not only that, not only does it tell us what the apostles actually said, what they expected, what they did in telling lost men and women how to be born again, it tells us how salvation was actually received because Matthew, Mark, and Luke John tells us how it became available to us. Acts tells us how it was received, how it was appropriated, how it was grabbed a hold of. The letters are written to those men and women that received the Gospel and appropriated it for themselves. That's the church. They are letters written to the Church of Ephesus, the Church of the Galatians, uh, the Church of the Thessalon- Thessalonica, the Church of Colossia. Um, all of these different churches that Paul was raising up as he traveled through Asia Minor, they were written to them. So they were written to people already in the kingdom, already having received the gospel. And it was basically giving them instructions on how to live a Christian life. How to live following after Christ. They tell us how to live once we are saved. And then the last one, last group, what is it? Prophetic. Prophetic, meaning revelation. Revelation is prophecy describing future events concerning the second coming of Christ. The book tells of the future destiny of the world, especially for those who are saved. And especially for those who are not. So we're going to divide this section up into two parts. And we're going to focus right now on the teachings of Christ. We're going to do that this week and next week we're going to cover something else. um, But I won't get into that yet. So let's start in Matthew 1. Verse 18 through 25, everybody gets to read. And we'll read one verse at a time so we can go round robin. Say it again,
1: Matthew. Matthew
0: 1, 18 through 25. And we'll start with Elder John.
3: Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost.
2: Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away quite right? Privately. Mm-hmm.
0: Privately. Secretly, yeah. Behold, the virgin shall
3: be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us.
2: And Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and
4: did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus.
0: If you remember, how Genesis started, we read how sin entered the world through one woman. And if you remember, when that happened, the Lord made a promise. He he told the woman through prophecy that through her seed, the serpent will be bruised. And here we read in the beginning of the New Testament, we see how salvation entered the world through woman. Notice that the son born to Mary received his name by how? How did Joseph know what his name was going to be? The angel angel decreed it. The angel, which means messenger, servant of the Lord, decreed what his name would be called. And the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. Now, Jesus was born nine months later in Bethlehem. And this fulfilled the prophecy that was written in Micah 5.2, which says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Again, Micah 5, verse 2. We also notice as we look back upon this, that Mary was espoused to be Joseph's wife. But before they even got together, she was already found having conceived of a child through the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 20, Joseph is of the lineage of the son of David. I think I gave to you last week the lines, how they split from David. One was Nathan, one was Solomon. Well, Joseph here is the son of David through the kingly line, through Solomon's line. Mary, on the other hand, was a son or daughter, if you will, of Nathan's line, but still through David. Does anybody know where it says the virgin shall be with the child shall bear a son? They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Does anybody know where that came from? Because that was a prophecy in the old covenant.
1: Isaiah.
0: Isaiah. It was written in the book of Isaiah. Now, what I like in in helping you understand that you must not make this mistake. And divide up the Bible and cut it in half in the middle. And say, here's the old covenant. And then crack it open and say, no, over here's the new covenant. It's one book from one author. God, through different pens, pencils, if you will. He's continually writing this story. And the same way that we saw acts of faith in the old covenant... We see it here in the same way. When God came to Noah, what did Noah do when God heard his word? Four letters we keep talking about. He obeyed. He obeyed. What did Abraham do when God came to Abraham? Obeyed. We see these acts of faith. Well, what happened when Joseph, who was you know thinking in his mind, what am I gonna do? This woman is pregnant. I was supposed to marry her. He thought to put her away, but the angel decreed something to him. And how did he respond to the word of the Lord? It says he arose from sleep and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So we see that faith is exhibited in the very same fashion as in the old covenant. There's no change. Don't separate these two books as if there's something different going on. This is the same story. You should see the same acts of faith and those acts of faith are obedience to the word of the Lord. Now Jesus had a cousin. Anybody know the name of his cousin? He was born before Jesus. John. John John the Baptist. He's often called the forerunner of Christ. I wanna look at some of the ministry of John the Baptist. Let's turn to chapter three of Matthew. Starting in verse one. Where we one at a time or we'll just keep going around so we can reduce the amount of yawning and and everybody can be engaged. Yes.
2: In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea
4: and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.
0: For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight.
1: How many verses? To there? six. Okay. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey.
3: Then went out to him, Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about, Jordan.
2: And were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins.
0: Now John the Baptist is introduced to us as the one who fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 40, verse 3. Of this voice, crying in the wilderness, making, uh, the prepared the way of the Lord. Making his past straight. The people that John baptized publicly confessed their sins, which indicates that John's baptism was more than just a religious ceremony, it had important spiritual significance. Let's continue reading 7 through 9. Same chapter, verses 7 through 9.
4: But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, fruit of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come?
0: Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance.
1: And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham.
0: Now before John would baptize someone, he insisted on seeing Some indication of what? Repentance. Repentance Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Fruits are actions, which we'll find out soon enough. The fruit of a man is his actions and his behaviors, the things that people can see. And they, the Pharisees, did not bring forth fruits worthy of repentance because they would not change. They would not come in and get baptized. They would not go out in public and publicly confess their sins like all the other people who actually listened to John and did what he said to do. And he knew in their heart, God must have revealed it to him, that the Jews prided and thought that they were safe and secure because they were simply the bloodline of Abraham. And so John addresses that. The fact that they were descendants of Abraham was irrelevant. They still had to repent. They still had to confess their sins. Let's read verse 10 and 11. Whoever's next. Wouldn't
3: it be nine?
0: We read nine? I thought we did. Yeah, we read nine. I'm sorry.
3: And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire.
2: I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you, baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire.
0: So before he says that John the Baptist says, listen, trees are being cut at the root. That means they're not just being sliced up above the earth. God is coming down underneath and taking and uprooting them out because he doesn't want any remnant of this rebellious trees. He's taking them out entirely. And he says, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down. It is thrown into the fire. You read enough of the New Testament, you realize he's talking about man. If man will not Repent! if they will not change their ways and continue to walk in fruits that are not worthy of repentance, they're going to be thrown and cast into the fire. He's going to take care of them. But he refers to one that would come after him, that would baptize with the Holy Spirit, the very same spirit that conceived Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary. Now the word baptize means, anybody know? What does the word baptize mean?
1: Submerge
0: or immerse completely. There's one that's coming after John the Baptist who's going to immerse and submerge people in his Holy Spirit and fire. Let's read verse 12.
4: Widowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire.
0: This verse is a description of the judgment that is going to come because he is going to clean his house. Jesus Christ was to be one of testing and refining his ministry. And he is going to test and refine those that he calls to himself. And those who do not pass his test will be cast into the unquenchable fire. Reading verse 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him.
1: But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me?
3: And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him.
0: Now John the Baptist was preaching to sinners. He was calling them unto the repentance. He was calling them to baptize, confessing their sins, Because that is how he was making straight the paths. That is how he was preparing the way for the Lord. If John the Baptist did his job right, he was speaking to the hearts of sinners to get them to change their ways and to repent. And if they showed that sign, that is how they are making their way so that Jesus can come in. Because Jesus can't come into someone's life if they are unwilling to repent. That's how he made straight the paths of the Lord, by straightening the paths of sinners through repentance. And that prepared the way for the Lord because then they were willing to listen, then they were willing to hear the words of the one who was mightier than John the Baptist who was gonna come after him and baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire. Yet Jesus still came to John and still wanted to be baptized. Yet he had committed no sins. It didn't say he went out there and confessed any sins. He was an example to us that we all should be baptized because for even Jesus, it fulfilled all righteousness. If Jesus believed that he had to be baptized, How in the world could anyone who calls himself a Christian say that baptism is not necessary if Jesus Christ himself submitted to it? The baptism of Jesus also foreshadowed his death into the waters, his burial in the waters, and his resurrection rising up out of the waters. We've been talking about the blood, the water, and spirit, the death, the burial, and resurrection seen throughout all the Old Covenant. Well, the baptism is a type of that as well. Now, after Jesus' baptism, he was driven into the wilderness. Matthew chapter four, verse one through eleven. We're going to read next. Next Starting with mm-hmm. one. Uh huh.
2: Then was Jesus led up to, wait, mm-hmm. then Jesus was led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil.
4: And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry.
0: Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if You are the son of God, commend that these stones become bread.
1: But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God.
3: Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple.
2: And said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone.
4: And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God.
0: Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory.
1: And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me.
3: Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve.
2: Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him.
0: Let's take a look at some differences that we see between the conditions of Adam and Eve when they face temptation of the devil. Remember that. In the garden, they faced temptations of the devil, just like Jesus just now faced temptations of the devil. But they fell into sin. But he resisted and he walked away victorious. Think about this. Adam and Eve, where, where, when they were sinned? When they were uh, tempted? Where were they? In the,
2: in the garden. In the
0: garden. They were in paradise. Where was Jesus when he was tempted? He was in the wilderness, a desert place. Adam and Eve... They had their fill. They could eat whatsoever tree, fruit they wanted except one. What about when Jesus was tempted?
4: Hungry.
0: He was hungry. For 40 days and nights he didn't eat. Think about Adam and Eve. When they were tempted, wasn't it indicated that Adam was there the whole time? He just didn't say a word? You don't remember that? Okay. Let's turn to that real quick. In Genesis 3. In verse 6, chapter 3. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. You see, he was with her. He didn't say anything. He was there the whole time. So when they were tempted, were they alone? They had each other. But when Jesus was tempted, he was absolutely alone. There was no one with him. No one that he could look to. No one that he could lean on. No one that he could confer with. It was just him. Adam and Eve, I would venture to say, were in their strength. They hadn't gone through anything. They were eating from the trees, the fruits and the different things. And they had all the dominion of of the Garden of Eden. Yet here, Jesus, when he was tempted, was in weakness, was he not? Fasting forty days, forty nights, and he was hungry, because it said he was hungered. Adam and Eve were human beings. Remember what the temptation or or that seed that Satan dropped in? He said, Be like God. You're gonna be like God. He doesn't want you to eat that fruit because you're gonna be. Yet Jesus was God, humbled himself, becoming a mere mortal man, human being. Somebody read 1 Corinthians one i I'm going over this list of comparisons because I want you to understand what God did in the state that he did it in and the reason why he did it. He's making an, a, a point that we cannot ignore or neglect. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than
2: man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man.
0: The weakness of God is stronger than man. In the weakest condition that God could put himself in, he was still able to overcome temptation from the devil. This shows that even in God's quote-unquote weakness, he's superior over man. In that he can do in his weakness what man in his own strength cannot do. Think about that and consider that. God in his weakness is stronger than you at your strength at your prime of life. Let's go to the sermon on the mount in verse 23 of chapter 4. Verse 20
2: of
1: chapter what?
0: Matthew 4, same place, verse 23. Uh Uh-huh. 23 through 25. One verse each.
3: And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people.
2: And his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments. And those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them.
4: Great multitudes followed him, from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the
0: Jesus Christ's ministry consisted of primarily three things, teaching, preaching, and healing. Now, healing also includes deliverance. One of the greatest examples of his teachings is found in the book of Matthew, through chapters five through seven. And these passages are are popularly known as the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching on the Mount. Let's look at it together. We're going to go to Matthew five. We're going to read two verses each. Starting in verse one. The verses that we're about to read as we get to 12 show us the kind of attitude that we need to cultivate in our lives in order to be blessed by God. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying,
1: Blessed are the poor in spirit, <clears throat> for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you want wants to do too. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted.
3: Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled.
2: Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they
4: shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of
0: heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These verses tell us What is a blessing in the eyes of God? Obtaining mercy is a blessing. That causes you to be blessed. Seeing God is a blessing. Being called a son of God is a blessing. Being a peacemaker is a blessing. These are the things that the Lord is seeking after, searching for. When we read 13 through 16, you're gonna read three.
1: Okay. <clears throat> I guess I'm reading thirteen through sixteen. Okay. Right. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt had lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is therefore good for nothing but to cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house.
0: Go ahead and read 16.
1: Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven.
0: I should have read two at a time. I'm sorry, but that's fine. God, through those verses, is expecting his people to live out his teachings. It's not enough to have faith in our heart and have it hidden away and have it secretly hidden in our closet. We're supposed to live it out in such a way that people around us see our faith in God. Not to show off, but because we're not afraid to say, yes, Jesus is my God. He's the God whom I serve. He's why I do what I do. He's why I say what I say. He's why I act the way that I act. I'm not trying to be holier than thou. I'm just trying to be pleasing to my God. And if that blesses you, then so be it. Amen. Let's read 17 through 20. Two at a time, so Monica will finish.
3: (coughs) Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, though heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled.
2: Whosoever therefore shall break one of these, these commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven.
0: There's some people that think that because Jesus came, we no longer need to be concerned about the law. But look at what Jesus just said here. He says right here, he didn't come to destroy the law. He didn't come for people to neglect it, to, to forget about it and say, that, oh, it's, it's outdated, it's irrelevant, it's not for today, it's not for us. If he didn't come to destroy the law, what did he say that he came to do? He came to fulfill it. Now look at something that his apostle Paul said later on to the Romans in a letter to the church, to the saints. And I've already told you what is the purpose of the letters to the church to give instructions of Christian living. He says in Romans three, verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Because I have faith in Jesus Christ. Does that nullify the law? Is Paul's question. And he says, certainly not. God forbid. On the contrary, he says, we establish the law. We establish it. He says elsewhere, we prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable what? Will of God. We prove that. We are showing that to the world, whether they like it or not we stand up for righteousness, God's righteousness, for God's law, you do that today, you're going to get persecuted. Politicians are persecuting. The state, the federal government is persecuting people for standing up for God's laws and righteousness today. If you don't know about it, you haven't been listening to the news because it's happening all over the world. Yet that's what we're required to do. <clears throat> Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Skip a few verses and go to 27 through 30. Two verses each, please. It's uh, it. you. It is? Oh, she. Okay, my bad. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart.
1: And if thy right hand offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell.
0: We look at those verses and we think, Jesus taught that acting appropriately or properly, that's not always enough in pleasing God. Because Jesus is saying right here, Hey, you heard that law, that word that said, hey, don't commit adultery. There's an act, right? Committing adultery is an act. Well, Jesus said, hey, if you look at a woman and you don't perform the act, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's not always the action or the behavior because God is always the type of person that starts to look at the man in his heart. So even if you don't do the action or the behavior, nobody else knows about it around you. Oh, that guy's a good guy. What a great guy. Oh, yeah, you can count on him. Yet yeah, Jesus is the one looking at the heart. And it matters to him what is in your heart. So it is important on behaviors. I'm not saying it's not. Our actions, our words, our deeds, they're important. But don't ever neglect or forget that God is more interested with what's going on in your heart. And if what's going on in your heart is right, you will produce right fruit. But some of us are like chameleons. There's something going wrong in our heart. We just ain't showing nobody. And God still sees that. So we must also keep our hearts clean. Not just our actions, but deep in our inner man has to be clean. Jesus went to great lengths to stress what horrifying thing is going to happen to those whose even hearts are not clean, even though their actions may look like it to everyone else. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire. Let's read 38 through 42. Skip a few more verses. We'll read three and then two. Ye have
3: heard it, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on that right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law
2: and take away thy coat. Let him have thy cloak also, and whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Two. That means two miles. Mm
4: From him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow, and from you, do not turn away.
0: Now Jesus, he keeps bringing up the law. He keeps bringing up the old you know, law that that they all knew and that they all abided in or tried to anyway. And he starts making it harder. It's not just the act of adultery that causes you to sin. Well, if you do it in your heart, you've sinned. And I think that Jesus is contrasting the old law and another law that supersedes it. There's another law that is mentioned in Romans 8. If I remember correctly, someone go ahead and read Romans 8 just the first verse. I think it's the first verse. There is another law that Jesus is talking about here. And it supersedes the old law. It doesn't nullify it, but it supersedes it. The
1: law of the spirit
0: of life in Christ Jesus. Thank you. The law of the spirit of life In Christ Jesus, the law of Christ supersedes the old law that was given to Moses. Because that's all that they cared about. That's all that they wanted to know about. Tell me what I do. Tell me what I don't do. But Jesus is giving another law that's, oh my God, if I do it in my heart, I'm guilty. As if I did it, that seems harder. And all it is is that this new law supersedes the old law. Under Moses' law, we have the right to get even with anyone who wrongs us. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You kill my brother, I kill you. You kill my sister, I kill you. You took my goat, I take a lot of your goats and more some you need to repay with, with interest. That's how the old law was. That was the, what do you call it? The fractional system? But under the law of Christ, this new law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it is far more powerful. And look at how it, what he's describing. We're told to forego our right to get even. To allow ourselves even to be wronged again. Now Romans 8 is called the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's called the law of love. Love supersedes all other things. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about how powerful love is, how patient love is, how strong love is. And so this is the new law that we need to abide in. It supersedes it, which means if I walk in the law of love, Am I going to abide in that law of Moses from before? I, I'm not. Well, you
2: are, if I
0: walk in the law, law of love, will I establish that law over there yeah. that Jesus came to fulfill? Absolutely. You'll
1: go above, it, above and
0: beyond. I will go above and beyond it, but I will fulfill all of its requirements because the law of love says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same law as in Leviticus. Just, people didn't get it. They wanted this, don't do this, and don't do that. But if I will love my neighbor as myself, I'll never commit adultery against them. I'll never covet the things that they have. I'll never covet their wife, their, their child, or, or their their donkeys, or, or whatever. I, if I love God, will I worship other gods? No. If I love God, will I honor my father and mother? Absolutely. Walking in the law of love supersedes it because it takes care of all of it. It establishes it and fulfills it. And that's the love of walking in the spirit of Christ. It's walking in the spirit of Christ that causes us to actually establish the law, to prove what is good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. So let's go to verse 43 now. Is that me? Yeah, I think so. You have heard. That it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That is the law of love. Next three verses
1: that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans... Did I do something?
0: Just finish that verse.
1: Oh, do not even the publicans so?
0: John, you can finish the next two, to
4: 48.
3: And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? do not even the public themselves, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect.
0: Now, a lot of people get stumped on that verse. We're being called to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. But look at the context that this is being described in. Loving your enemies, blessing them that curse you, do good to those that hate you, who spitefully use you And persecute you. This is what perfection is being uh, described under. So perfection is not about not making mistakes. It is about walking in the law of love. If you walk in the law of love toward your neighbors and your enemies. You're walking in a way that is perfect before the Lord. Let's go to chapter 6. verse 19 19 through 21 read read 3 verses whoever's next lay not
2: up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor dust, rust, (laughs) (laughs) dust, it's just weird, okay, wait, um, okay, where neither moth nor rust doth, is that dust? Doth. But it's it's uh, old English. Okay, but it's does. Right? Does, right, yeah. Does. I'm just going to say rust, dust, corrupt, and where these do not break through nor steal. One more. Um, the light of the body is the eye. No, 21. Uh-huh. Oh. For where your treasure is, there... Will your heart be also?
0: Awesome. Amen. Jesus tells us here that our hearts will automatically be set on that which we possess. In the kingdom of God, possessions are not measured by how much we acquire, but by how much we give. Verse 24.
4: No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You
0: cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon means material wealth. (laughs) And there's a spirit of deception on many in the church that think that they can serve God and simultaneously pursue the accumulation of worldly goods and materials. You cannot do both. Let's go to verse 31 through 34, two each. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things.
1: But seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof.
0: Basically, saying if we put God first in our lives, we will not need to be concerned about our earthly needs, because God already knows what they are and He's going to provide them. He, thats what that all that says. He has promised to supply us if we do our part. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all of the things shall be added unto you. All of those things will be taken care of. That's the context of this verse. Let's look at the golden rule. You ever heard of the golden rule? Nobody's heard of the golden rule? Matthew 7 verse 12, the golden rule.
3: Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets.
0: Now, have you heard of the Golden Rule?
2: It said, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We
0: That's say it.
1: Say it to our children all the time. I mean, most people that are Christians say it.
0: This is the summary. Of Jesus' teaching on the law of love or the law of Christ. Paul wrote in Romans back to Romans 13:10. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is. anybody know what it says? The fulfillment, the fulfillment of the law. The If we would always love others as we love ourselves, as we take care of ourselves, as we concern ourselves with ourselves, we would be perfectly keeping God's law. It's just that simple. And we're about to end. We're in the last chapter or the last chapter that I'm going to cover today, Matthew 7. Let's go to verse 13 and 14. In spite of the fact that it is very simple matter to keep God's law, there are few who actually do it. So let's read thirteen and fourteen. Why is this?
2: Matthew seven thirteen. Okay. Mhm. Enter. E. You just say you. It's okay. Enter you in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth. To distraction and many there be which go in there right? thereat, there at, like there. Because? Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it.
0: Why are there few that actually keep God's law? Because people are just too self-centered. This is what Jesus describes. The pathway to eternal life is very narrow. And it's difficult because people are going to have to sacrifice themselves. People are going to have to do what John the Baptist called people to do. What? Repent. Repent. But most people don't want to do that. They don't want to change their ways. They don't want to change their lives. They don't want to change their thinking. Why? Because they think they're right. They think their way is the best way. Let's go to verse 15 through 20. Read two at a time.
4: Do wear false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly really they are breathing wolves. And you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles?
0: Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit.
1: Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them.
0: See, this goes back to what John the Baptist was telling, hey, the axe is being cut to the root. It's going to take these people out. And what is he talking? Jesus is now talking about good trees produce good fruit. If there's a goodness in your, in your heart of the tree, it's going to produce good fruit, good actions, if there's good in your heart. But if there's not good in your heart, if there's bad in your heart, you're going to produce bad things. You're going to have bad decisions. You're going to have bad actions, bad choices, because there's something wrong in your heart. And this is the ultimate end. Of those trees that produce bad fruit in the kingdom of God, they're going to be taken out, thrown into the fire. Verse 21 through
3: 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works.
2: And then I will, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity.
0: In reading that, do we know what they were lawless about? What was the iniquity? Was it what what they were stealing? Does it say they were lying? I don't know. Maybe. But the lawlessness of this passage, if we leave it in its context, remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is a continual teaching. Chapter 5, 6, and 7. and chapter 5 and 6 and 7, he's been talking about this new law, this superior law, this law of love. So what is it that these people are doing? They're not living by the law of love. They're failing to live by the law of love. And he's going to say, depart from me. You may have had things that were outward were maybe have been good works and you did this and that and the other. But your heart was never with me because I look into the heart of me. And so let's end with 24 through 27. Two at a time. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. If we go back to verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. This is about doing his will. The emphasis clearly on those who do what the Word of God requires as opposed to those who hear it, but then they fail to act on it. Like John the Baptist. You brood of vipers. Why would he call them that? Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Why won't you get baptized? Why won't you confess your sins? Why won't you repent and do what God is requiring? James writes this in James 1, 21 through 25. I'll read it. You can write it down. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Humbly receive the word of God because it's able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Otherwise, you deceive yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks in the mirror at his natural face, he observes what he looks like, and when he goes away, he forgets what he looks like. And immediately, he forgets what he looks like. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues walking in it, He's not a forgetful hearer, but he's a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. It's this one who walks in the law of love that will be blessed. It's the one that hears and does what he's heard from the word of God. That's what's most important. So whatever we saw in the old covenant is a continuous requirement in the new covenant. It hasn't changed. Just because we call it Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't mean it's like a different book. It's a continuing story. See, how do New Testament saints obey the word of God? Now that I've baptized them in my spirit, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we will. The teachings of Christ are clear. Our lives must back up what we profess to believe. If we say we believe in Jesus and we do not obey his commandments, who are we deceiving? We're just deceiving ourselves. And we make ourselves even more something that Jesus called the Pharisees time and again. Woe, you hypocrites! hypocrites. Woe unto you, hypocrites! And if he said that to the hypocrites in his day, what do you think he's saying to the hypocrites today who call themselves Christian but do not abide in his word? You hypocrites, be gone. Like Bishop said, he blows them away. <laughs> I did this or you, I did that you. I, I never knew you. Be gone. I never knew you. That's what he will say. Amen. Thus is the ministry of our Father's heart through us. Our utmost desire is to be in the Father's heart, to know the Father's heart and express the Father's heart to you. If you appreciate listening to this podcast and were blessed, pass it along to someone else by text, email, or word of mouth in the hopes that they might be positively impacted as you were. If you are interested in supporting our efforts, we would ask you to consider the following. One, pray for us. Two, leave a positive rating or review with whomever you listen to our podcast with. And three, If you desire to contribute monetarily, you can do so at paypal.me slash jbenjesus or cash app, dollar sign, jbenjesus or Venmo, jbenjesus. That's J-B-E-N-J-E-S-U-S. God bless.